Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now age of radio this podcast contains adult content Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. All right. Welcome to Mysterious Circumstances. I'm Justin. Today we're going to be talking about the disappearance of Deborah Poe from a Circle K gas station in Orlando, Florida, back in 1990. Before we get going, let me thank some new Patreon subscribers. We got Joseph H., Stevie Tiller, and James Moulton. Much appreciated. I hope you guys are enjoying that backlog of episodes. Like I said, got about 100 on there now, and going to be more dropping by the end of the month. I think I got like five days left in the month, and I got four episodes to get up there, so just got to record and edit them so good deal before we get going with the actual episode i do have to state some sources real quick i got an article from the orlando sentinel in february 2015 unsolved mysteries wiki we got the actual unsolved mysteries show which aired in 1991 fletchermarple.com An article from the Orlando Sentinel from February 1990 written by Lauren Ritchie and also crimeblogger1983.com. He's actually a friend of mine, does great research. For those of you looking into specific cases or whatever, definitely hit his spot up first. He, He does great work. With that being said, let's go ahead and get on with the show. Alright, like I said, saw this on Unsolved Mysteries. For those of you who do not know, there's a bunch of free episodes on YouTube. So, enjoy. (laughs) But I love watching the old episodes because it brings up cases and then I kind of look into them. And I'm like, oh, there's still, there's actually a lot going on here, still unsolved. So, let's go ahead and do an episode on it. Now, a little bit about Deborah. She was 26 at the time of her disappearance. She was born August 3rd, 1963. There's a lot of publications that incorrectly say her birthday was in 1964. She disappeared on February 4th, 1990. She was originally from Virginia. She had moved to Orlando four months prior to her disappearance. 
Her reason for moving was just for a fresh start, and she moved with her friend and eventual roommate, a woman named Lori Tillman. And um, I can definitely relate to that. I moved uh, clear across the country for a fresh start a couple times, so definitely understandable. Now, Deborah, she was a hard, hard worker. She had two jobs. She had just gotten a job working days at a local newspaper, which, ironically enough, is the Orlando Sentinel. She worked in the retail advertising sales department, and her other job was the graveyard shift at the Circle K convenience store, and that ran from about 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., and she did that night job five days a week. I think part of the reason she did it, obviously more money, uh, it was less than two blocks away from her apartment, though. Now, Deborah Poe's boyfriend, a guy named Scott, also her mother and her aunt, all begged her to quit the night job when she got accepted a permanent daytime position as the clerk in the uh, sales department of the Orlando Sentinel. But Deborah, she didn't want to quit. She, she really didn't think anything bad would ever happen to her. Uh, her boyfriend, Scott, at the time said... I told her I thought it was stupid that she was staying there working that shift. There were too many weirdos, too many guys flirting with her, and too many drunks. Now, Deborah, she was still pretty persistent on having that second job. Her boyfriend didn't convince her to quit either. So he came up with a different idea, and this is a quote from one of the articles. He said, I started working the night shifts with her for the last month. Then that one night I listened to her when she said, Honey, there's no need for both of us not to get sleep. I don't need you to be my protector all the time. So Scott left her store on February 3rd at about 11 p.m. Saturday and returned to check on her minutes after she was reported missing. According to Lori, her roommate, and her mom, she was working two jobs in order to save up money to buy a house and start her own catering business. So on February 3rd, just after 11 p.m., a friend had stopped by to discuss house plans with her. Whether that was her boyfriend or a regular friend, I am not too sure. I saw two things written in several different publications, so take that as you will. Now around midnight, her boyfriend Scott visits her, um, said she seemed fine, and also in another source that I read, her boyfriend Scott visited her at 1 a.m. So, take that information as you will. Now, police later verified that she had waited on customers until 3.05 a.m. One source said 3.15 a.m. So, on February 4th at about 3.50 a.m., her friend came back to the store and found it empty. Now, this is about 45 minutes after her last customer. Her boyfriend showed back up at the store at about 4 a.m. shortly after she was reported missing, but he only showed up to check on her. He didn't know that she had actually been reported missing. And he, like I said, was worried about her working nights. He would go in and check on her occasionally. When police got there, they found her work smock folded behind the counter. Now, a smock is kind of like a vest or an employee jacket. That thing, it was folded behind the counter. The cash register was locked, and there was no evidence of a robbery. There was nothing missing from the store, and there were no signs of a struggle anywhere. Her car, which was a new Toyota Celica, 
was found parked in its usual spot and nothing appeared to be disturbed. Her purse, paycheck, and her car keys were all still locked inside the car. And I find that odd. I only read in one place that her car keys were also locked in there. But I find that odd if they were locked inside. So the cops initially thought that she had left on her own because of these details. And there was no sign of a struggle whatsoever. You know, her... Uh, her little work vest or jacket folded up behind the counter. Nothing was missing. No signs of a robbery. But the cops soon determined that she had most likely been abducted. Deputies theorized at the time that someone lured or dragged her into a vehicle behind the store at Hall Road and Aloma Avenue. Now this is according to her mom. She was about 105 pounds and about five foot three, so that's pretty petite. It would not be too hard for one man or two men to do for that matter. And the reason that they came to the conclusion of her being abducted is because they had the department's helicopters. They searched a five square mile area with a heat seeking infrared device. There were several searches by the residents who were nearby they were all looking for her. family members were out there looking for her, and bloodhounds were out there looking for her. the bloodhounds though picked up on deborah poe's scent outside the convenience store the orange county sheriff's detectives said that the trail ended on the pavement and that's where the authorities think she had either been taken or gotten into a car now, let's go over some more facts and some theories, all right? One witness came forward and reported that she had stopped at the store during Deborah's shift between 3.15 a.m. and 3.30 a.m. And she remembered that a tall man was working behind the counter. And this is during that 45-minute gap between two visits from one of Deborah's friends, which would have been her friend Lori or her boyfriend. She noted that when she asked for a pack of cigarettes, he had difficulty finding them, and she had to show this guy where her particular brand was because he didn't know where they are. And she thought that he was just a new guy and that he was still learning where all the items you know, behind the counter were located, especially cigarettes. So according to deputies, the man calmly operated the cash register and checked out customers and gave them change and everything like that. Now, this one woman said that after she got the cigarettes, the man said, you really shouldn't smoke, you know, and then she left the store. There are no employees at this time that fit his description, and he has never been identified. At the time, this man was described as being over six feet tall, early to mid-twenties in 1990, stringy shoulder-length dark hair, and he was wearing a Megadeth t-shirt with a dragon spitting fire. He was wearing a skull ring and a cross earring. And I'm going to be honest with you, that is a tough description because in 1990, that describes a lot of people. So before we move forward with some more facts here and more suspects and theories, Let's go ahead and take a little break, and I will meet you guys back here in a few minutes. Alright, so two weeks prior to Deborah's disappearance, she reported that a naked man had jumped over the counter and then chased her around the store. 
She ran outside to the gas pumps and the man followed her. And fortunately, she was able to go back into the store and lock the door before he could get back in. Now, we do not know if this incident was related to the case, but I'm pretty sure her boyfriend at the time, Scott, this is the kind of shit that he was talking about, probably why he wanted her to quit because of all the weirdos. And I love you, my people in Florida. I love you guys. I love the state of Florida. I literally have two cousins that live there, but there's some weird fucking people in Florida, man. All right. Weird people. Anyway, moving forward, and don't take that as an insult, all right? There's weird people everywhere, but Florida is always in the news. Now, investigators also interviewed a man that Deborah Poe had dated at one point in time. She had broken up with him because she was afraid of him. Now, I tried looking for further information on this person, but apparently nothing came of it. He really wasn't considered a person of interest, apparently. Didn't really hear any more about it, so... Let's move on forward to 1996, six years after her disappearance. Police noted that they believed that the man in the Megadeth t-shirt was the boyfriend of one of Deborah's co-workers and was merely a witness in the case. But they were never able to locate or question him. And here's a lot of problems I have with that. One that seems oddly specific. Why do they think that he's a witness and not involved? And why would this dude be just casually acting like he worked there? Also, why did it take them six years to come to this conclusion? If he was a witness, you know, police now have a suspect in Deborah's disappearance. But he was never charged, he was never questioned, because it took him six years to come to the conclusion I don't know how that this guy apparently was just a random witness, a boyfriend of one of the ladies he worked with. Did she come forward years later and say, yeah, you know, that was, that was my boyfriend. He fit the description. How did nobody else know this? You know what I'm saying? That just seems really, really odd. So while investigating her disappearance, they found out that there is a possibility that she was the victim of a serial killer in the area. So check this out. Six months before Deborah Poe's disappearance, on August 6, 1989, another gas station clerk named Donna Callahan disappeared in Gulf Breeze. And then on September 18, 1990, five weeks after Deborah, another clerk named Darlene Messer was abducted from Lake City. Darlene was found two days later, bludgeoned to death, and her murder is actually still unsolved. This is what made police think that they were all abducted and murdered by the same person. And it's kind of odd that all of their first names start with a D as well. Kind of interesting. Now Donna Callahan, she was later found. Her body was found, and her killers were identified. They were Mark Reeb and William Wells. Now, both Deborah's disappearance and Darlene's disappearance, but both Deborah's disappearance and Darlene's murder remain unsolved, even though they found Darlene's body. And that's where the speculation comes from that Donna's killers, those two guys, Mark and William, were the ones responsible for Deborah's disappearance. 
Some more reasons they think that is because these two guys were together the weekend of the abduction and had a close relative in that general area. Do you remember that female eyewitness from the store who got those cigarettes? She picked William Wells out of a photo lineup and identified him as the man she had seen in the store that night. But it has not been confirmed if the men are suspects in Deborah's case. So let's flash forward to March of 2002. Detectives go and search an area behind Chapel Hill Baptist Church for her remains. Now this is about five miles away from Circle K. The dogs had detected an odor of human remains, but nothing was uncovered. Police say there was a possibility that remains were buried there at some point. So in one of the articles at the time, one of the investigators commented that the area was near a suspect's house. And this is why some people think the suspect was her boyfriend at the time, Scott because he lived across the street from the area where police searched in 2002. The fact that he had returned to check on her minutes after she was reported missing, and he supposedly was also a pastor at that particular church, but he has also never been confirmed as a suspect. And I guess my big question is, did he match the description you know what I'm saying? Because I'm just going to say, you know, like 1990, I know a lot of people had long, stringy, dark hair. A lot of people had cross earrings and skull rings. But did the girl who was buying cigarettes pull him out of the lineup too? You know what I mean? And I'm almost 100% sure no Baptist church is going to have a pastor that probably looks like that. Let's be honest here. So I guess I got a little bit of problems with that. Now, the fact that Wells and Reeb had family in that general area, they were together on the weekend she disappeared, and they were caught for murdering one other clerk at a, at a gas station or convenience store, and then there's another one, you know, that's involved too. I don't know, man. I I would like to think that that Wells and Reeby or Reeb, I don't even, if I'm even pronouncing his name right, you know what I mean? I mean, if I'm not, fuck that guy anyway. But these two guys right here are probably, to me anyway, the best potential suspects or people of interest, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, I'll leave that up for you guys to decide. Um, obviously, not a very long episode. There's not a lot of information on this case, but it is an interesting one because... I guess if these two dudes showed up, I don't really see why she would be comfortable enough to just take off her, you know, little work smock and fold it up and put it behind the counter unless it was either already off or one of those guys did it. Like I said, she had a petite frame, so getting her into a vehicle, especially if there's two guys involved, is not going to be a hard and then you also have the fact that the girl who saw the dude behind the counter when she was in there picked out Wells, but at the same time, this dude worked the cash register fine, he was calm, he was waiting on customers in there, giving back their change, didn't really think much, you know, that's why nobody really thought anything of it, he just didn't know where her brand of cigarettes were. 
So how many people knew how to work that register? Now, if that guy behind the counter was a coworker's boyfriend at the time, I want to know how, how it took six years to figure this out and why they think he's a witness and not a suspect or a person of interest for that matter. I don't know. That dude's never been located either because, you know, six years and all. But anyway, that is all I got for you on this episode. It's one of those cases that'll make you think. It's a lot of different scenarios, some different theories going on. So until next time, see you folks on the flip side. 